it's by divine providence that we're holding today in studying, and we're going to study today the Sicha of this week's Parsha Lech Lecha, which is the fifth Sicha of Lech Lecha, published in volume 15 of the Rebbe's edited version of his talks. This is a collection, this Sicha, from three different Fabrengans where the Rebbe spoke about this topic, but it was collected and formed into one uh, essay here. The first one was a section that the Rebbe spoke at a Fabrengan for his father's yard site on the 20th of Av, and also on a Saturday night, Parsha Re'eh, and this was in 1978, and also a section is taken from a Fabrengan called Simchas Beis Sheba, middle of Sukkot Fabrengan, that he Fabrengan outside in the Sukkah in 1963 Sukkot. Now, why is it so apropos to now, to this time of the world, is because this theme of this talk is regarding the amount of, not just the amount, but in several different instances and times where God told Abraham that I will give the land to you and to your descendants. Before we go into the, into the heart of the Sicha, I just want to remind us that we said in Parsha Bereshis, in the first Rashi, that the land of Israel was, is, was given to the Jews, and God, who's the creator of the world, he gets to decide who should be in the land, and at the time, the Canaanites were in the land, and that's when he said the Canaanites will be, have to be taken out, and the Jews, he's giving the land to the Jews. How we took over the land, we're going to talk about this today, and we're going to see that historically, we had two major times in history that we came into the land. In other words, two times when we were not there and all of a sudden the Jewish nation came there. And we're going to see the difference of these two times of how we came in under the auspices and the leadership of Joshua and how we came later after the Babylonian exile through the auspices of the prophet Ezra. So what's important to remember is that the land was given to us regardless of whether we were there or not there. The land belongs to the Jews and nobody could take it away because once Hashem gave it to us, He said, I'm giving it to you. God said, I'm giving it to you for the, till the end of time, forever. It's going to be by you. So nothing could happen that could take away the land from us. But we're going to see different instances of what happened and whether it changed any status of the Jews in Israel or not during certain instances. We're going to begin with this point. In partial Lech Lecha, we find a number of times where God promises to Abraham that he will give him and his children the holy land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. Right in the beginning of the Parsha, it says, Vayar Hashem, Vayir Hashem al Avram, and God appeared to Avram. He wasn't Avraham yet. Vayoymer, and God said, Lizaracha eten esaaretz hazais. To your offsprings, I will give this land. After that, it says, when, a- when Abraham left Egypt and he started heading up to Eretz Yisrael, to the Holy Land, and he had his nephew and his brother-in-law, Light, was with him. And there was problems with the, because they both had great wealth. As we know that Light wanted to stick around his uncle, Avram, because he knew that his blessings will come by hanging around the wealthy. And he also became accumulated lots of wealth. Of those days, wealth was in animals. And he had lots of cattle. And the... Shepherds of Abraham and the shepherds of Light were fighting with each other, mainly as we learned a couple days ago that Rashi brings down that the shepherds of Light, they were letting their animals graze the fields and eat from the fields of others. And Abraham's shepherds had said that that's called stealing. What was their claim to be able to let their cattle eat from other fields? They said, what do you mean, Uncle Avram? Uncle Avram got a promise from God that all the fields belong to him. 
So therefore, it's ours. It's our families. We're allowed to graze. There's no such a thing of a foreigner's fields. But Avram's uh, shepherds, they said that no, it's not yet the time, even though we were promised it. So in any case, they did have disagreements. It was decided they're going to each separate and go on their own way. And at that time, Hashem said to Avram, All the land that you could see, Etnena, I'm giving to you, Ulazaracha, and to your descendants, Ad Olam, forever. Then Hashem says to him, Come and go on the land, go to its length and its breadth. In other words, step on the land everywhere. I want you to actually physically be there. Take a trip on the entire land to its length and its wet and its breadth. Ki lechot nana, because I will be giving this land to you. Then towards the end of the parsha, when we have what's called the bris bein absarim, which is the special uh, covenant, the place between the parts where they had a special place where they walked through these these two parts of an animal, and it was it's like considered to be a one part, but that's the place where there was a special bonding covenant of a God with Avram. And over there, Hashem says the following, On that day, Hashem made a covenant with Avram. And Hashem said, He said the following, To your descendants, I am giving this land, Minahar Mitzrayim, from the rivers down in Egypt, Ad Hanohar Hagadol Nahar Puras, until the great rivers all the way north of the of the Euphrates rivers, which is all the way up in Babylonia and Iraq. That's the promise of the land size that Hashem says, all the way from Egypt all the way up to this big, huge river up there. And then Hashem enumerates in the verses the ten nations that were living in this huge piece of territory from the Egypt all the way up to that river, to the big river. And all of, you're going to have that all for your you and your descendants. Now, what's the major difference between these different promises that a God promises to Avram? In the first two promises... God is talking in future tense. It says, I'm going to give this to your descendants. And it's talking in future tense. I'm going to give this to you. It's a promise. It says, I'm going to do this soon. Or it does this soon. I'm going, going to do this. And those two promises in future, that are mentioned in future tense also did not have any any action, Avram didn't do anything to get that promise. But in the later, in, in when he says later, he says in the next promise, when he says, to your descendants, I have already given to, in past tense, that came only after the verse that says that Avram, you should go and walk the land, to the length and to its with its breath. And then Hashem says, in a continuation, Hashem to the words that God says, I am giving this land to you as an inheritance. That's the key word here, inheritance. And also, this was done in a response to Avram's question. When Hashem says to Avram, I'm going to give you this land, Avram says, how do I know? How do I know that I'm going to inheritance? Can you please give me a sign? God, you're promising me that you're going to give me this inheritance, this land. How do I know when I receive this inheritance? Soon we're going to find out that that question alone that Abraham asked, how will I know, is considered to be a sin for Avram's level of his level of faith. He should have not needed to ask that, but we're soon going to see that. But so far we have that he's dividing up the different places where it says that I'm going to give you this land. 
that we have expressions of past tense and expressions in future tense. First, it's in future tense, I'm going to give it to you, and then we have in past tense. And the past tense comes after Avram is doing an action of walking the land. Now, we have the famous, well-known, great Torah scholar, we call him the Ragat Shover Goen. We spoke about him several times. His name was Rabbi Yosef Rosen. He lived in the 1920s and 30s. I believe he passed away in maybe 37. And he was a great, great Torah scholar and one of the greatest of his time. And there was even some correspondences that he had with the Rebbe. He also was very well known for his correspondence through postcards and he would write dozens of Talmudic sources. And one of his geniuses in Torah learning is, is he was able to pick up on uses of words and show you that the different use of words make a huge difference to the whole content of what you're studying. So on this point that we said, there's a past tense and there's a future tense, he picks up here the following. That in the third promise, Hashem says the word lirishta. He's going to give it as an inheritance. And even when Abraham asks his question, he says, how will I know about the inheritance? Again, referencing the idea of the land as, as, as a legal idea of definition inheritance. But in the earlier verses, he says, I'm going to give you, give you is using the words etain in Hebrew or etnena, which is more the word of matana in Hebrew, Matana means a gift. So we have two categories of law in how the land is given to Avram and his descendants, to all of us. Is it through a method of inheritance or a method of gift? And he says, actually, the Ragachabra points out that these two definitions of whether we got the land as a gift or whether we got the land as an inheritance is actually the difference between the two times that the Jews had to conquer the land of Israel. The first one was in the time of Joshua, in the year 2488. Remember that Abraham was born in 1948 of the creation of the world. 400 years later, we leave Egypt because that was a promise that God gave to, to, to Abraham that we're going to be 400 years in exile, we're roaming around before we're going to get out of Egypt to head towards the land of Israel. Then we had 40 years that we were punished to stay in the desert because of the story with the spies. And in the year 2488, Joshua leads us to conquer and take over the land of Israel. That's the first time where we had the concept of kibush, taking over. And over there, it's reference to the idea of a gift. In a gift, when you say a gift, a gift means you give a whole gift. You don't give a half a gift. So when we took over the land, it was an entire land of Israel and you don't use the definition that it was a part of it. When Joshua comes to the land, we take over the entire land. Then we have many years later, after we're in the we're in Israel for three almost four hundred years, then finally King Solomon builds the first temple. It's the first temple stands for four hundred and ten years, and then we're kicked out of Israel by the Babylonians for seventy years. We're sent to Babel to present day Iraq. After seventy years, Ezra the prophet leads us back into Israel, and that's called the second conquest. And there we have the terminology of inheritance. Again, because the Torah uses two different words, in some of the promises it uses the words a gift, some of the promises it uses the words inheritance, that's what the Ragachavar is pointing out, that it refers to the two different times that we had the conquer. The first time it's a gift, because that's all, it's all, and Yerusha is the second time where it's an inheritance concept, where over there it could also be mean parts. Inheritance can mean parts. Now, based on this, that we have the two different ideas in the promises, the first two promises and the promise that happened by the 
place of the covenant of the parts where God promised to Abraham the land in inheritance. So the conquest of the second time we went in, that came when, when again, when we went in with Ezra, what, what happened? We were kicked out of the land for 70 years. Why? As we say in the prayers on the holidays, we say in the Musaf prayer, we say, Mipnei chato'enu golino meratzenu. It was because of our sins that we were exiled from our land. So but there, it alludes to the idea of the promise that I said, I will give it to you. Which is like the second time. I'm like I'm gonna give it to you. In other words, it's gonna come after the question that Abraham said, with what will I see? How will I know that we got this inheritance? And as the sages point out, that Abraham's question, how will I know? Give me a hint, God, give me a sign. That's considered a sin for his level, as we see right after this promise. After Abraham asks, What's the hint? And then God prompt tells him, I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance. And then God tells him, you should know that soon your children are going to be, your offsprings are going to go into an exile of Egypt. Ah, they're going to go into an exile. Why does God have to mention this right now? You know why? Because Abraham should have not even questioned it. So it's kind of like, you know, something negative happened on that level of, of greatness of for Abraham, that now he gets notified at just right then at that point about our exile into, into Egypt. And it also hints to the Babylonian exile. And it also hints to the other exiles that followed later on. And now we're considered to be in the last final exile before Mashiach. However, in the first conquest, when it came to with Joshua, that was the first time we came into the land of Israel. Over there, we have the first two promises. And that was not in a continuation of Abraham's question. It's just God on his own said, I want you to know I'm going to be giving you this land. So again, we have, let's summarize a bit. We have the two versions of the way God speaks to us. You're going to get it as gift. And you also, I already give, gave it to you as inheritance. So too we have regarding the second idea, which was the promise that I gave it to you. That came after Avram's walking on the land through its length and its width. Over there, the Targum, Yonason, you remember we spoke about that there's several translations of the Torah. One of the earliest Aramaic translations is called the Targum Yonatan. And he says that when, it, when Abraham w- had to walk on the land first, that's because when you walk on the land, you're showing that it's yours. Right? That you're, you're, you're emphasizing the point that it's yours. So Abraham had to walk because walking on the land showed that it's his. And that's also the idea in the second time when Ezra led the Jews inside of Israel, as we're going to see now, a fascinating Rambam. The Rambam, who's our lengthy uh, source of law, says the Rambam the following, that there's two levels of Kedusha. There's a Kedusha that happened, a holiness that happened when we entered the land the first time with Joshua, and then there was a second one when we went in with Ezra. Says the Rambam like this, in the first conquer it was a conquer of many people going in and taking over since we took it from the Canaanites therefore when it was conquered from us you should know that at that point the Torah's uh, you should know that at that point the Torah is telling us that once we were kicked out of Israel, we're exempt from all the laws that are relevant to when you're in the land of Israel. Meaning, the tithing of your, your crops, every seventh year, having a, your field should have a sabbatical year, you're exempt in it. Why? Because it lost a certain status of Eretz Yisrael, of the Holy Land. But when Ezra went back, and he sanctified the land. He did not sanctify the land because of conquering it. He didn't conquer it. We just went back into Israel. 
So just going back and, and being on the land made it that we had a certain hold on it. And therefore, we had such a strong hold on the land of Israel that even when the Babylonians came, that sorry, that we came back from the Babylonians exile now, it still stays sanctified and holy until today. In other words, even if it was taken away from us at any later point, the law is you were still obligated. If you were in Israel, you would still be obligated to give tithing and celebrating every seventh year of the sabbatical year for your field. In other words, proving here from the Rambam is basically saying that there was a difference in the way Joshua conquers the land and the way we go back with Ezra. The way we went in with Joshua, it was a conquer. So somebody else conquered us, okay? So the laws of Israel don't apply anymore. By Ezra, it was a different kind of taking over in the land. We went back and settled. So we were like taking a hold of it just by being there. And that made a certain status of holiness that that holiness level never leaves. So now the Rebbe asks a question on this. What's the connection that you're saying there's a certain kind of holiness on the land when we conquered it with Joshua in reference, like we said before, like a gift? And the second kind of taking over the land, which happened through by just being there to the concept of inheritance. We said before, Hashem promised us several times. First few times, it's an expressions of gift. I'm giving it. And later he uses the word inheritance. So that means that the first time we went in with Joshua, we took the land and the holiness did not stay forever. If when we were kicked out, the holiness is not there at the same level of holiness and therefore you don't, you're exempt from doing the laws that, take, that apply when you're in Israel. So that's the, what's the connection of that to a gift? And then the second time we go back with Ezra, we're saying that's uh, some kind of holiness that lasts forever and that has to do with inheritance. What's the connection to gift and inheritance whether the holiness lasts forever or not. What's the connection there? So to explain this, the Rebbe takes us on a little Torah ride. And it's a fascinating ride that exposes, it will expose us to a way of, different kinds of ways of thinking in Jewish law. There's a commentary on the Rambam called the Kesef Mishnah. Kesef Mishnah means the silver of the Mishnah, but basically it was written by the Rebbe Yosef Cairo, who's the one who wrote the big code of Jewish law. And he has a commentary on the Rambam where he basically mainly brings down sources of where the Rambam got each law that he wrote. And he asks two simple questions. He says, number one, I don't understand what's greater or stronger by Ezra's coming into the land over the first conquest with Joshua. Why don't you say the same idea, just like if we, anybody took back the, took away the land from us the first time, when we got, like when we got it from Joshua, maybe it should be the same thing, that if anybody took away the land from us way later after the days of Ezra, like let's use the example of the Romans, right? That they took over the land and kicked us out. Maybe it should be the same thing. We should lose our rights there. So what, what's the difference, in other words, of the different strengths of the way when Joshua went over when Ezra. When Ezra went, ah, that was so amazing that the holiness stays with us forever. What's the difference? Number two, in the first time when we took over the land with Joshua, was it not an amazing hold that we had on the land? Isn't it a much stronger hold on a land when you got it through conquest? You now have the land strong and firm. Isn't, doesn't that show on the strength? Before we continue, it's worthwhile to mention the Rebbe's view in 1973 that when Israel took over the Golan the Golan Heights, when Syria was uh, shelling down from the Golan Heights and we took it over and Israeli tanks were traveling all the way into Damascus and we were about 40 kilometers short of Damascus. Being 40 kilometers away from the capital of Syria. 
the Rebbe had his secretary call Moshe um, Dayan's uh, his his um, personal assistant to pass a message that the, he should tell instruct the army to go all the way into Damascus. He said they should go in there even if it's just for one day. That will create a strong enough Vic, that will be a full victory that you actually took over the capital for one day just to show, hello, if we need to and we want to, we could. But he was very scared of world pressure and he didn't do it. He sent back a message to the Rebbe that thank you very much. I respect your opinions, but I'm too scared to go that far. The American pressure and so on. The Rebbe sent back a message that he thinks that this is a big, grave mistake. He says, because you won't have a full victory unless you go all the way. So back to the Kesef Mishnah's question over here. Isn't the first conquest by Joshua much stronger than from just taking, living in the land without the conquest? Now there's many explanations to these, to this questions that the Kesef Mishnah asks on the Rambam, because the Rambam is the one that, that kind of defined the difference he was the Rambam's giving us the law difference, saying that Joshua's conquest was not strong enough or full enough to the point that when we got kicked out, all the laws were suspended, right? And by Ezra, it was much stronger, much better, and therefore it lasts forever. So that's why his question is, what's the difference? So there's, he brings down one of the commentaries that explains this, is the Radvaz. The Radvaz was a student of the Maral of Prague, and he actually lived mainly in Spain, and he left Spain to Israel about 15 years before the Spanish Inquisition, just to put things into a timeline for us. The Radvaz gives an explanation. He says, it would seem to me that the difference between the way Joshua's conquest was and the way Ezra led, the difference is that in Ezra's days, they sanctified the land of Israel verbally. They made some kind of declaration, announcement that the land, this is the land is holy. So the Rebbe says, one second, <laughs> I hear what you're saying, Radvaz, but where's there a source for this? Where do we find anywhere that Ezra's campaign also announced something verbally? And even in the Rambam itself, we don't find anything alluding to this idea that Ezra's days, they said something verbal. On the contrary, the Rambam actually just said that the holiness of the second of the second of the second entry with Ezra does not get nullified, and the first conquest holiness does get nullified through another countries that will take it over from us. So from the Rambam, you don't see at all this idea that we sanctified it through verbally. And the second point is, there's another commentary called the Taisus Yamtif. Maybe if we have time at the end of the class, I can tell you the amazing story of the Taisus Yamtif. But for now, the Taisus Yamtif was a student. Sorry, the Radvaz is a commentary on the Rambam who lived in Spain. The Taisus Yamtif is a student of the Maral of Prague. He has a commentary on the Mishnayis. And he says the following. He answers the Kesef Mishnah the following. He says that we could maybe say that the conquering of the Gentiles taking over the land of Israel nullifies the Jewish con- conquests but when you, but it's different in the days of, of Ezra. Why? Because Ezra didn't bring the Jews back up into Israel through conquest. He got it from the Persian king. The Persian king, Melapara, said to Ezra, okay, I'm giving you the permission and you can go live there. In other words, he gave us permission to take and live there and dwell there. Therefore, because we got it kind of like with permission from the kings of the time. Therefore, it's ours, and therefore, it can't be nullified. So he's basically saying that the difference is when you conquer it from Goyim, okay, so if the Goyim are stronger, they conquer it from you, then you're out. But when you get it from the Goyim as a gift, and then it's yours. Says the Rebbe, that answer of the Taisus Yamtif doesn't really answer the questions that the Kesef Mishnah asked. The first question of the Kesef Mishnah was, I don't know, he said, what's the difference 
of the strength of the, when we came in with Joshua over the strength that we had in the days of Joshua. So regarding that question, if conquering it by Gentiles through war, is that a way how to acquire something? And that will nullify the rights of the Jews who got, who conquered it before. Then what are we gaining through another conquest? Meaning that the way to get something has to be through the knowledge of the person who you're getting it from. You could still ask the question, why does it not say by Ezra's days that if somebody else would come and conquest us, we'll still get it. They'll, they'll also get it and it'll nullify our rights there. In other words, just because the first time we got it through war. So if another country, other guy come and take it away from us for more, it's going to be theirs. So you could say the same thing by Ezra's days. That if we got it through, you know, through the Persian Empire, but so what? Another nation could come and conquer and take it away from us. How does that make it weaker for somebody else to come and take it away from us? Why after, the, when we got it with Ezra, then it's ours forever? So to his second question. He said, when we sanctified it the first time with Joshua, was it not a strong, such a good enough strong take that nobody else could take it away from us? Regarding that, we could say that if you study the book of Joshua, we all know that we also, even Joshua got certain sections of the land of Israel by way of gift from the Goyim. You remember the story with the Gibonites? The, the Givonim. The Givonim said to the Jews, we're going to give you our cities. It's true. They promised they're going to pay the taxes to us. They're not going to fight with us. They just said, please don't kick us out of our land and don't kill us and, you know, just let us stay there. Which, by the way, they're, again, not here, but in the Rambam goes to many details of the way we took over the lands and the law and how we conquered it. It wasn't so simple that we came into the land and said, oh, everybody leave or we kill you. Not at all like that. We gave warning to everybody. We said, Hashem said that it's going to be our land now. You could either leave in peace or if you want, you could stay and throw out all in the garbage all your idols and you could start to believe in one God. And pay your taxes to the Jewish people because we're going to run the country. And if not, then you want to fight us. So may that be. But even when you want to fight us, there was laws. The Jews were not allowed to take over a city by circling them from all four sides. We always had to do it by three sides and give them one way that they could escape out. If they want to run. Even then. But your point here is that you're telling me that by... That by the second time we went up with Ezra, we went up and because the king of Persia gave it to us, he says, even in the days of Joshua, we got some of the lands through by way of them giving it to us. And nevertheless, the Rambam does not differentiate between one place and the other place. He says, all of Eretz Yisrael, all of the land of Israel, since we took it from them and others will, if others take it away from us, our responsibilities to the Torah laws and the land laws, the laws that apply to the land, don't, won't apply anymore. We'll be exempt from the tithing and the, the sabbatical years. So we're back to our questions. What is ultimately really the difference that when Joshua's conquest goes, if others conquered from us, we could lose the holy status of Israel? And when it comes to Ezra, it's not so. And again, I preface this entire sicha that it's not talking about our rights to the land itself. We're dealing here with a holy, the, the mitzvah levels, the holiness status of the land. Now, the Toysus Yamtif comes and he gives us another continuation of an idea. He says like this, you can't say that maybe there's a difference in land that God gives us, but God also told the prophets that there's going to come a time and I'm going to let the enemies destroy it and take it away. He says, maybe that there's a difference here. In the first time when we took the land, we also had prophets. We're in the prophets, it says that the land will be taken away. And there's also a prophet that one day the Persian emperor, Kairish, 
who is the king of Paras of Persia, he will allow you to go back into the land. But after that, we don't have any prophecy that the land will ever be taken away from us again. Therefore, once we went back and that prophecy was fulfilled, we went back with the permission of the Persian emperor. That's it, it's us. And nobody can take it away from us. And like the law is, you can't really steal land. How can you steal a land? Nobody can steal the land from us. You can't steal land. You could try to live in it, but the land, you can't move land. Land is land. So Tesis Yantam, maybe that's the logic of why when we came back with Ezra, the land stays with us forever because there's no prophecy that it will ever be taken away from us. So he says, this also is still difficult and we have another question if you want to say. He says, whichever way you look at it, there's going to be a problem here to really understand that comment of whether people could take it away because there's a prophecy that it's going to be taken away or whether or not. If you're going to say, that conquering through war is a way how you acquire something and it becomes yours because you did it through war. In other words, halakhically, Jewish law, if through war you take it, then it's yours. Then what's the difference of whether we find that there's a prophecy that one day it will be conquered or not? Since you got it through law, I won the war, we got it, it's ours, and that's it, now it's ours. What's the difference about the prophetic part of it? That's on one hand. The other hand is, if you're going to say that his intention is that if a non-Jew, the non-Jewish people come and the non-Jews don't have a right halachically to, to be able to call something theirs through war. And there was no prophecy for them after, after the Ezra's arrival with the Jews, that there's no prophecy that, that they, anybody will ever get it. Therefore, if they take it, they're taking it not lawfully. And there's no concept of t- taking something to war. But in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar, when he and Kairesh, when they took the land of Israel after the first temple, they destroyed the first temple. And it says, Al-Pi Hashem Kavshu, it was conquered by the Babylonians with the word of God. And that's only a temporary thing that happened. That they got it through through conquering. If you want to say this, he says, it doesn't fit at all with the Rambam's narrative. And it's very important in Jewish law that things fit with the Rambam's narrative if the Rambam mentions it in his book of laws. The Rambam explains that the reason that there's a difference between the way when Joshua took it over and the way days of Ezra's takeover is relating to the, the first time we went in. It was a conqueror. It was a conqueror. And the second time, it's not called a conqueror. Jo- conqueror means you went in with army. Or we went in with ammunition. You went in armed. With, jo- with Ezra, we didn't go in armed. So in other words, it has nothing to do with what the Jews did. The Rambam saying is the difference is of whether it's a conquer or whether it's holding a hold on it. That's his two words. Kibush or chazaka. Kibush means conquering. Chazaka means you have a hold on it. So if you, if you conquer it from the nations and the, the, the Babylonian exile was able to t- nullify the holiness there, that's because Nebuchadnezzar's conquered was done according to the law. But in the second exile, since the nations came to conquer it not lawfully, therefore the, the holiness doesn't get nullified. That means even if it would have came through a conquer, but the point is since nobody had the rights anymore to take a, over the land of Israel, therefore whatever they do has no law ramifications to it. If they kicked us out by strength, they slaughtered us and we had to leave, so may it be. But that doesn't change the reality of the owners of this land. Regarding the second question of the Kesef Mishnah, that he said that the first time we went in was there not a hold? Didn't we have a hold on the land when we went in with Joshua? You could maybe answer, like some of the commentaries try to say on the Rambam, that even there, even when Joshua takes us in, we also had a hold on the land with Joshua. The only thing is that we didn't 
do an act to make it that I have a hold on it. In other words, you had a hold on the land only by default because you were there, but you didn't do anything specific. For example, there's a law, he brings down here a law that says regarding a convert. If a convert, if, if a Gentile becomes Jewish, right, and he, get, he gets a piece of land in Israel, and now what happens if he has no heirs? Right? He has no, there's nobody to inherit him. He dies. So what happens to his land? His land is called Hefker. It's ownerless. What does that mean? That technically anybody could come and say, I'm working on this land and it's my land now. Because it doesn't belong to anybody anymore. By a Jew, he has family. He has children, a wife, a brother-in-law. There's always going to be somebody that will come and claim their rights in the line of inheritance. But by a Gentile, by a, by a convert, sorry, he who dies without any inheritors. So what happens if he has a worker that's work, that works for him in the field? So if the worker's working there, does the land automatically become his? No. He has to actually do something to say, I'm doing this act in order to prove that the land belongs to me. If he just happens to be working in the field, but not without the intention that I'm taking the land for myself, then nothing happened. So, so too he says, we could maybe say, some of the commentaries say, that when the Jews went in with Joshua, we happened to be there, we conquered the land, but we didn't formally make it that we have a hold on it. It was just kind of like, like by default, we happened to be there. Like that worker working for that convert in the field. But he says, besides the fact that this whole idea would need a lot of examining to see if this really upholds this way of thinking that in the time of Joshua, they didn't actually make a chazaka because you have to do it with intention. It's hard to learn this, that, uh, this, that concept of way of thinking, even though it's a fascinating way of thinking, but it, it does, it's hard to learn that because we see that in the cities of the Givonim, Obviously, we didn't take it through conquering. They just gave it to us. They gave it to us on their own will. So why in those cities that they gave us on their own will, would that not be considered to be like, I have a hold of it, I have a chazaka on it. Because if you gave me this piece of land, that's already a different story. By the convert, he just left it ownerless because he died like that. But in a case where the Givonim gave it to the Jews... It would be obvious that we act that by just by living there that we took it. So how do we explain ultimately the difference between the two takeovers of the land of Israel in the days of Joshua and in the days of Ezra? So to explain this, finally the Rebbe is going to give us a crystal clear approach to this whole idea. When the Jews came into the land of Israel, two things happened, and this is the key point here. Number one. There is a rights of money, meaning ownership. The fact that it belongs to me. So number one, there's a physical land and there's a physical ownership of a well of a value that's here of this land. That's number one. So by God giving us the land, he actually gave us a good a piece of real estate. Right? You know the old joke when people say that oh he gave us such a great land the land of Israel right flowing with milk and honey why did he give such a good land to the Jews I mean did they really deserve a land with flowing milk and honey and the old joke is that God said don't worry wait till you see the neighbors that I'm going to give them you know so (laughs) but the point is that the first thing of the giving of the land is the rights of ownership of this piece of value number two is the idea of sanctification, holiness in the land. And we're going to divide up these two points. So there's the owner of it, and then there's a sanctity in it. The first thing is, the first step is the ownership that a Jew has on the land of Israel. How did we get it? Because Hashem gave it away to Avram, to Abraham, our father. And as the Jerusalem Talmud points out a fascinating 
um, detail to emphasize on one of the words when Hashem said, I'm giving it to you. He says, Lezaracha, to your seeds, to your offsprings, Nasati, I gave it. It's not a promise. It's not a promise. I already gave it to you. That means from that moment already, Hashem says, I already gave it to you. That means even before the Jews get to Israel, it's already yours. Hashem said, I gave you this land, he tells Avram. That means we don't even have to get there yet, it's ours. And actually, the Talmud tells us you could find, even in law, how we could see how the land belonged to us before we even got into the land. How do you see this in law? Beautiful law. We all know the story of the daughters of Tzlavchad, the five daughters that Tzlavchad had, the famous uh, uh, complaint that the daughters of Tzlavchad had to Moses. And they said to Moses, our father died and he's not coming with us into the land of Israel, but he also has a piece of the land in Israel, so we want it. My father, we don't have any brothers, so can we not inherit this land? We want a piece of this land too. And our father has a right to a piece of this land. And we want to have, like, our father was a firstborn of his brothers, and firstborns get double portion. So we want to have his peace. Now the problem is that there's a law that a a firstborn boy only gets double portion if if, if your parents actually owned something when they died. If, if some windfall came to the family later, the oldest kid can't come and say, oh, I, get to, I want my double portion. If it wasn't around at the time when his parent, father died, he doesn't get it. It has to be something that they own. So now, how does the daughters of Tzlavchad get rights to their father's double portion of the land? It must be that their father actually already owned the land. How did Tzlavchad own the land if he was never in Israel? Ah, because Hashem told Abraham, I gave you the land, I already gave it to you. It's yours. Technically, okay, you didn't, you're not there. But it doesn't matter, I still gave it to you. It's yours. So that's the first thing. The fir- Again, emphasis. The first thing is, Hashem tells Avram, Hashem Nasati, Lezarach, Nasati, I gave it to your in- descendants. To your offsprings. I already gave it to you. Without even being there, it belongs to your family. But the second point is a second thing that happens with the land of Israel. And that's holiness. What does that mean? That means that in order that you should be obligated to do a lot of mitzvahs, you actually have to be in the land and the land has to be holy. That happened only when we got into the land of Israel. For example, all the laws of tithing, you have to be in the land. Then now you're a holier people. The land has special kedusha in it. And therefore you're obligated to follow certain guidelines of laws. Until we actually were there, we didn't have all these laws. But it was ours. We still owned it. You didn't have to do any of those mitzvahs yet. You didn't have to give your first bikurim, your first fruits away to the Kohen. You didn't have to do that yet. Because we didn't have the sanctification yet there. But the land is yours. Now, what do we accomplish of actually going into the land and making it holier? By going into the land, there's a difference between the two entry times that we went in. When we went in the first time, it was with the instruction of God. Hashem said, Chalutzim Tavru. You should go in armed. Send in all the armed people first. The tribe of God had to go first. It was a whole system to go in to conquer. That means the going in should be in a way through war. That's the way Hashem wanted it. The first time is go armed. You're going to go in through war conquering. Therefore, the holiness of the land happens only through conquering. Because that's the way Hashem said the first time go in. So how did we get it? How did we acquire it? How does it come holy? through this stage of actually going in there. Now we understand why taking a hold of it and actually living there doesn't help to the point, not even in the cities of the Givonim, 
even though they gave it willingly, because the holiness that happened came through the commandment of God's instructions. Therefore, being there didn't, being there, having a hold on the land, didn't actually help to keep the holiness there. In other words, even though Hashem told us that you're going to have to do these mitzvahs, but by going in, it had to be through conquering the land. So by conquering it, as long as we conquered it and we were in charge, the holiness stays put. And even more than this, since the going in and the holiness happened in a way of a nich aret, you have to conquer the land. We could say, when it says the land, the land, what does it mean, the land? Where was the first place that we conquered? The first land we conquered was the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho is like it's brought down in the commentaries on Navi, says there it was the Nigra, Nagra of Eretz Yisrael. It was like the lock to the whole land of Israel. Therefore, once we were able to pull down the strongest city of Israel, which was Jericho, we, the walls came in. It's like as if we conquered already the rest of the land. So it already brought a holiness in the entire land by that conquering stage. However, there are many mitzvahs that we had more conditions before we had to meet certain conditions, more conditions, before we actually were able to do more mitzvahs. For example, the mitzvah for Yovel. Yovel is the jubilee year. Every 50 years, after 7 times 7 is 49, so every 7th year is sabbatical year, and then there's a 50th year where you have another sabbatical year, and you have to blow the shofar, and everybody goes to the temple. It's a whole ceremonial time of this jubilee year. The jubilee year concept did not start until all Jews were settled in their places in Israel. How long did it take Joshua to conquer? Seven years. How long did it take him to settle us down, divide all the 12 tribes all over Israel? Another seven years. So the law, certain laws did not come in until after 14 years of being there. But that doesn't make it that there was more holiness. It just was more conditions of our being there. The, ultimately, the holiness happened when we came into the land and as soon as we pulled down the city of Jericho, it was like it had halachically the term that we conquered everything and if you had a field, you had to follow the laws and other laws that took place there. So that's the level of holiness that happens there. Based on this, we could say another explanation why having a hold on it in the time of Joshua, even for those Gibonite cities, did not affect actually the holiness of the land to the point that it could never leave that holiness. However, by the entering of Ezra's time, over there Hashem says, Efkot Eschem. But Ezra came back with the Jews at the end of the 70 years, right again, after the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Greeks, seven, we were chasing to Babylonia, we come back with Ezra, over there the verse says, Hashem says, Hashem says, I'm remembering you to bring you back to this place. This is the desire and the command in the remembering from Hashem. Not that we should have to conquer it. You could just go up and settle there. Therefore, that Kedusha was a real hold on the land. It didn't have to come through any kind of proving anything to anybody, any kind of fighting. We just went back up. Ezra announced, whoever wants to go back, there's no fighting. Let's just go. There's all kinds of stories. People got settled after 70 years. They weren't running to go back. All kinds of stories. But the point is, whoever was smart enough to go back with him went. Based on this, we could understand the first question of the Kesav Mishnah when he says that what is, I says, I don't understand what more of a hold did the Jews have in the time of Ezra? Since the Kedusha, the holiness of the land that came through Joshua, happened through coming into the land based on a commandment of doing it through conquering, that means the cons, the category of conquering is that we settled there because that was... But what does it mean you settle somewhere in, through conquering? Conquering means it's not the will of the other party. They don't really want that. Comes out that because there was a commandment to take over and be the owner, uh, that, that there's the, we are the owners of the land, it comes through being strong. 
Therefore, if they are stronger than us, then you could lose that Kedusha level. However, and the second time since when we went up, it's in a way of making it holy, and that kind of holiness it was not through conquering, therefore it stays. In other words, it stays to the point where it becomes yours, and it sticks with you no matter what. Now, another way to explain this is with other word, another word, like using other words, is that when we went up with Ezra, the ownership of our rights to this real estate also affected the holiness of the land, and therefore, just like Israel became ours, we had a hold on it. Now it can never be nullified, even after the destructions. It's our land, as we say. Galinu me artsenu, we're exiled from our land. We still use the word artsenu, admasenu, our land, our earth. And therefore it never leaves away. Now this explanation of the difference of the two taking overs, whether it was through war or whether it was just by going in there, there's also a beautiful, deeper layer to this whole thing. The Rebbe explains that there's a difference between the level of the Jews in the time of Joshua and the level of the Jews in the time of Ezra. The, now, generally generalizing it, the Jews in the time of Joshua's conquest were in the level of tzaddikim. We were very holy people, very connected with holiness and spirituality. The level of the Jews in the time of Ezra are called Baal Teshuvah. You know what it means about Shuba? Baal Shuba means a person who once used to sin and now doesn't sin. They, they have a grip, they're Baal. They have the owner of the name Teshuva that they return back to Hashem. And what's the difference between these two levels of a Tzaddik and a Baal Shuba? The level of a Tzaddik is mainly through affecting things from a higher level looking down at something lower. In other words... How do they elevate anything in this world? They affect it by above, by bringing more light. That's all they do. They bring more light and therefore the, the, the darkness that's down here is not dark anymore. But he says, when the effect comes just from above and the world itself is not really permeated with light, it's just that there's a whole big light coming from the top. He says, then and not necessarily will that light stay and always be shining. But that, and for example, the holiness of the land that we had through conquering the land. We did it through how? Through, through might. Ah. What happens if that place that was conquered now gets stronger? Our light could go out. He says this is the same thing in the two different kinds of ways, how a Jew serves Hashem. If you serve Hashem, that you have nothing to do with this world. You stay all day and you learn Torah in your house. That's all you do. You sit and learn Torah and you daven. Right? You do all these great things. Then we don't know yet how is this person going to react when he goes into the world and a test comes in front of him. We're not sure at all that this person will be able to stand by the test because they're not involved into the world. But a Batshuva works from within, from the bottom up. That's how a Batshuva works. Meaning, why did this person, why does a Batshuva, why does a person make a resolution? You know what? I'm not going to eat any more non-kosher food. That's it. I'm making a resolution. I realize that I'm a yid. I have a soul and Hashem gave me this commandment. I want to bond with Hashem. You make all your calculations and you study it and you learn about the greatness of the holiness of Hashem and now you made that resolution. That means you did it on your own. Because you worked on it on your own, that's going to last forever. And therefore, when again, a test is going to come in front of you, Let's use our example of food. You're not going to fall through it because you made a resolution from within. You're, you're like a transformed person. That's why you're called Balchuva. You're completely transformed of your previous stage. You don't even look at that previous stage anymore. It's not me anymore. That was somebody else.
That means that the Torah and the mitzvahs permeated through you so much that nothing could pull you away from it. And your connection with Hashem is basically infinite without any limitations. Like the second Kedusha when we came through in the days of Ezra. When we took over the land. Why did we go out to the land? Because It was because of our sins that were exiled from the land. Ah, now this is Balchuba people that came back with Ezra. So we're coming back into the land. Not in the same way the way we came the first time. We're coming back because willingly we're coming back. Based on this now, we could conclude with the, with the two definitions that we said before of whether the land is a gift or whether the land is an inheritance. We said the first few times, first two times, God tells Abraham, the land is yours. He says it like in a way of gift and the other time he says it in a way of inheritance. We know that when it comes to inheritance, nothing stops it. Because inheritance is like an automatic transferring of something. If a parent, God forbid, dies, automatically the kid gets it. There's no, nothing has to happen. I mean, if somebody contests it, you may have to fight it, but technically it's yours right away. By a gift, it's different. By a gift, there could be hefsek. There could be interruptions in a gift. In other words, even though a gift, you give it usually to a person only when they do something nice that you know you want to you feel good so you want to give them a gift but it comes out that when you give a gift it's not just because that person is worthy of it you decide on your own you want to give it to it. now if i decide on my own i don't want to give it i don't give it you have many times people people come and say oh you i'm going to give you psh, i'm going to give you this gift tomorrow they change their mind you know that's why with a gift don't say thank you until you have it in your pocket you know because a gift things could change when it comes to inheritance Nothing could change it. It, it, That's what it is, inheritance. And therefore, when it comes to a gift, it's emphasis mainly, as the Rambam said, regarding the conquering of Joshua, because there could be pauses to it. Just like when we went in through conquering it, it was like coming from above, like the level of a tzaddik, and therefore, it could be that doesn't last. So, But... that So that means that you got it as a way of a gift. That it came from above. But when it comes and when we get Israel in a way of inheritance, on the contrary, automatically the relative gets it. And you have the rights to, to claim for it. And this is yours. And it's not even really a transferring of property. Inheritance, the inheritor goes into the shoes of whoever you're inheriting it from. It's not that the house, let's just say, the house of somebody has to get transferred now to the kid. No. Halakhically, it's automatically yours. It, 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 it's just, you move into there. Nothing has to move. It is yours. And therefore, when it comes, when it's a gift from above, like a Yerusha, like the second time when we went in with Ezra, when we went in there, it happened automatically. And therefore, it stays there. The Kedusha stays there. And this is what it means, the, the hinting in the verses, that with, regarding to a gift, it uses the words, Lizaracha eten and etnena, it's in the future tense. And when it comes to the second Kedusha, there he's talking about, I already gave it to you. Because the first entering was connected with the Jews and the land. That you have to actually, that you had to do something which is going to be. Meaning that you're going to conquer it. But when the second emphasis is that you already always had it, that's why you just moved in so easily. The difference between a gift and inheritance regarding the land of Israel itself, that we just said, is only in relationship to the holiness of the land that happened when we entered in there. Because the Kedusha level of the first time was in a gift, the Kedusha of the second time, the holiness of the second time was in a way of inheritance. But the essence of the first idea of the land, that you are the owner of it, always is ours a one Hundred percent, nothing could change in it from the moment that God gave it to Abraham at the time of the place of the covenants, the Brisbane of Sarim. He gave it as he said, a nachlas olam. It's an everlasting gift, inheritance.
And it, nothing could happen to change it. So the first idea that you own the land, that never changes. The holiness level after Joshua, the holiness was able to leave and therefore we weren't obligated to do mitzvahs anymore. But after Ezra, even the holiness also stays as well. And therefore, there's no difference in what situation Jews should ever find themselves in. No difference. Even when the Jews have fallen to a level of because of our sins, we were exiled from the land. It's still called our land. And as the Gemara puts it, it's Eretz Yisrael Muchsekesi. You have a strong hold on it. It's a Yerusha inheritance from our forefathers, from Avram. Even if in the between, there could be the sin of a golden calf. There could be a sin of the spies. Nothing gets into the way. Hashem said, it's already yours. I, their sins. Okay, their sins. That doesn't change in the smallest iota of your full rights to this land. Especially as we said before, the, the Psak Din, which means the final halacha of the Rambam, that when it comes to inheritance, it's a holiness of this land in a way that there's no stop and it even stays holy all the way into the days of Mashiach. From here we understand that this is an idea that it's not a subject to even have an argument over here. It's not a business transaction over here or something like that. In addition, that in the entire Israel, with all the boundaries around it, as the verse says, Hashem says, I'm giving it to you, from the Har Mitzrayim, from the river of Egypt, until the big river of the Euphrates River, all the way north. Not like some people make a mistake, they think of it, it's from Egypt until to, to the Mediterranean. No, it's talking about from the south of Egypt, all the way north, way north. This is all an inheritance to every single Jew. And therefore, nobody, God forbid, has any rights to give away any piece of this land. Even the desire to give up a piece of land is going against the desire of Hashem that He said that it was my desire, I gave it to you for an everlasting inheritance. And while Jews stay strong in their stand, to hold on to every single piece of the land. Not because, which means not because of my own strengths that I have in the land. It's mine because Hashem gave it to me and all of us, every single one of us, as an everlasting inheritance. To the nation who's everlasting, we will succeed in it. If we stay with that strong understanding, to the point that it will be fulfilled, the promise in the book of Isaiah, that says that nations of the world will come and do your work. And the ministers of the world will come and they will nurse whatever benefits unnecessary for you. They will, the nations of the world, this is what the prophet is saying, they're going to come and help you fulfill the will of Hashem. Even in the time of exile. And this all hastens the coming of Mashiach because then we're going to see that to the Jews, that we're going to see to it that the, of the entire land, including the lands of Kini, Kinezi which are the other three that are on the east side of the Jordan, going all the way up. To the point that all the nations of the world, as the world, as the verse says in the book of the prophecy of Tzafania, that Oz Ehefeich El Amim Safabura. All the nations of the world will turn around and declare with one clear voice the name of God, and they will all serve this one God. And may this be now, the Meheira, the Amenu Mamish, now in our days.